any of us who've been in it for long enough, our entire career has been littered with jobs that we didn't get, projects that we thought were going to go for sure, dozens of unproduced scripts littering the floor. All of us are running into both major and minor failures in Hollywood every single day. For every success, there is months, sometimes even years, of painful failure. This is one of the only businesses I can think of where failure is the default. That's the norm. You have to be able to persevere. Like everything in our business, your hands get callous and it all bounces off you. Uh, you know, that process takes years. That doesn't happen overnight. I was being told by my manager, it's yours to lose. And I promptly lost it. <laughs> and I remember thinking like, well, that's it for me. I blew my one big shot. What I've realized from that moment is it's never one big shot. There will be other shots. Welcome back to Screaming Into the Hollywood Abyss, a podcast about rejection, failure, and adversity in the entertainment industry. As ever, I am your non-entertainment co-host, Dan Rutstein, and we have on the other side of the Zoom, Noah Evelyn. Hey, Dan. How are you doing? Um, on today's podcast, we have Stephen S. DeKnight. Stephen is a Hollywood triple threat writer, producer, and director. He started his career on Buffy the Vampire Slayer before segueing onto Angel, Smallville, Dollhouse, and others. He then became the creator and showrunner of Spartacus for Stars and the showrunner of Daredevil for Netflix. On top of all that, he has directed multiple episodes of TV, as well as co-writing and directing Pacific Rim Uprising. Welcome, Steve. Hey, thanks for having me. So I'm going to do something we've never done before on this podcast, um, mostly so it makes we seem less mean when we ask you the failure questions. We're going to start <laughs> with a success. So... Can you tell us the thing you've done in your career which you're most proud of? And then we'll get back to our usual way of doing things. I think that would definitely be Spartacus. And that came about in such a bizarre way. Um, I was actually a consulting producer on Dollhouse with Joss Whedon. And I was uh, in the process of writing and directing episode two. Long story short, uh, Dollhouse had a very rocky first season so episode the episode i was supposed to write was episode i think six or seven i was writing and directing episode six or seven because of the turmoil on the show i had written the script and then uh joss and tim minear read it and really liked it and sent it to 20th century fox who really liked it and suddenly that became episode two um it, there was a lot of jiggering around uh, on the show uh, so I was in the process of finishing a draft of the script and getting ready to prep to shoot the episode. And I got a call from my agent saying, hey, Stars wants to talk to you about some gladiator show. Are you interested? And, uh, you know, Stars was not known for original programming at that point. This was, you know, the streaming services <laughs> hadn't quite taken off yet. Um, and I remember in my career in the past, I had gotten over the years a call from my agent. I remember one distinctly where he said, hey, AMC is doing original programming now. Do you want to meet with them? And I told him, AMC, I'm working on network. Why do I want to talk to AMC? I will forever kick myself <laughs> for not taking that meeting with AMC because that was uh, probably about six months to a year before Mad Men. Mad Men came out. Um, 
So I'd learned my lesson from that. And I said, yeah, sure, I'll take the meeting. So I went in and I took the meeting with the, uh, the executives at STARS and on a calling in from a conference call was uh, Rob Tappert, Sam Raimi's producing partner. And we all hit it off great. And they said, uh, you know, fantastic. You're the guy. When, how soon can you start? We want to start immediately. And I said, three months. I'm writing and directing for Joss right now. I can't just leave. So they literally said, ah, we got to move faster than that. So thank you very much for coming in. We're moving on. So I, I had the job. I lost the job. I went back to Dollhouse and I was actually about halfway through shooting my episode when my agent popped up on set. And whenever your agent pops up on shit on set, it's usually really good or really bad. <laughs> so this time it was really good. They said, hey, stars called up. They've been talking to a bunch of people. They haven't found anybody they like as much as you. Would you still be interested? And I said, well, hell yeah. I mean, and everybody should understand, uh, I, you know, I was a huge fan of the Kubrick movie, Spartacus. So it was very intimidating to step into that pool. Um, and I knew nothing about Roman history. The only thing I knew about Roman history was the movies I had seen, you know, a little Ben-Hur, a little Spartacus, stuff like that. Um, but I said, sure. So I literally finished uh, editing on a Friday on my episode of Dollhouse and started Spartacus on a Monday. And I started by reading everything I could about Spartacus. And uh, so, it, and you know, the, the show was one of those things I don't think we could actually do now. Uh, it was a rare moment in time where Rob Tappert and I had such creative freedom that I've never seen before or since. And basically, that's because with Stars, they had one one-hour drama on the air, which was Crash. Um, but Stars wasn't producing it. Lionsgate was producing that. Spartacus, Stars wanted to own it and produce it. Um, the interesting part is most of the executives at Stars, the higher-up executives, were used to just programming, not developing original content. So as Rob and I were working on the show, um, uh, along with Josh Donnan and Sam Raimi. Josh Donnan is Sam Raimi's producing partner, longtime producing partner. Um, why we were working on the show, especially in that first season, we would get calls from stars saying, oh, I don't know about this. <laughs> you know, we think that might be a little bit too far. And Rob and I would say, oh, no, 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 trust us. This is what you want to do. And they would go, okay, you're the experts. And they literally let us do whatever we wanted. Uh, I can only think of, you know, maybe twice in the entire run of the show where we had to make a small compromise. One was in season one where you had the gladiator recruit with the rather large member. Uh, there's, a, there's a scene in like the locker room of the Ludus where Spartacus and Crixus are sitting there talking. And this guy with the large member walks in, but all you see is that. And uh, we had like two shots of it. And they said, can you cut out one shot of that? <laughs> and we said, okay. But besides that, they literally supported us and let us do whatever we wanted. And then when Chris Albrecht and Carmen Zlotnick moved from HBO over to take over stars, they came in, they looked at everything, they saw the numbers on our show and everything was working great. And they very graciously said, hey, you, you guys are doing great. 
keep doing what you're doing. And uh, they were very supportive because when you have that kind of regime change, that can just murder you. But they were very, very supportive and just let us do our thing. And it was such a Rob and I approached that show. Uh, you know, people always ask, who's the intended audience? Especially network executives want to know, who are you targeting? And for Rob and I, we decided early on, we're not targeting anybody. We're not, you know, originally it was sold as a male-driven action show. And there's plenty of that in there. But, you know, I have other interests. I really want to tell, you know, more complicated moral stories. I want the villains to think they're as much a hero as the heroes. And, and I really wanted to make a, obviously, a political statement. Uh, my big thing on Spartacus was that, uh, you know, in, in current day America, the middle class has been squeezed out. And basically, there's a corporate slave class that's been created. And, you know, there's a and it's only gotten worse. The, the gulf between uh, the haves and the have nots just keeps getting worse and worse. So that was my political bent on that. And also I had other, you know, I, I have social agendas. I want it, um, you know, as a diverse cast as possible. I wanted to present same-sex relationships as nothing out of the ordinary as they were in, uh, in ancient Roman times. Um, so we got to do basically anything we wanted to do. Um, and it was uh, coming off up until then, I'd only work on network television where I could only do PG, maybe kiss up to PG-13. Um, and suddenly, you know, I was on a show where, quite frankly, we skipped R and went straight to NC-17. Um, and that's a whole nother thing is that, uh, yes, there's a lot of nudity on the show. Um, only, I'd say, about maybe 25% of that nudity is actually in the scripts. Um my uh, my producing partner, Rob Tappert, loved to throw in naked people in the background anywhere he could. And uh, God bless him, it worked. Because you know, I was always the one saying, I don't know, there might be too much nudity in this show. And he always told me, there's no such thing as too much nudity in this show. And he was certainly right. Um, so I really think that that was the first show that I got to spearhead and run myself. Um, on the creative script level. And, and I can't emphasize enough, Rob Tappert, there would be no Spartacus without Rob Tappert. He was the uh, uh, producer uh, genius uh, on the ground in New Zealand, uh, making sure everything came together. Um, but that was such a wild time. I mean, the whole thing was one big experiment. We had no idea. Uh, we were way out on a limb. Uh, you know, Rob had this vision of doing Spartacus using the technology that Zack Snyder uh, did with 300. So it was all a big roll of the dice. And when you watch a show, you can see, I always say you have to get to episode four before it actually gels. Up until then, it's a little all over the place. The scripts didn't quite come together. Everybody was still finding what the show was. Uh, we were also using a lot of the same crew and some of the same actors that they had used on Hercules and Xena. So it, it, it took us all a bit to really figure out, okay, this isn't Hercules and Xena as much as I love those shows. Um, so <laughs> long, long story long, it was a huge experiment. And at the end of the day, I got to say, it's still the thing 
on social media that I, I get the most questions about. I get every week, uh, 10, 20 people pop up saying, when are you going to do a sequel to Spartacus? And uh, I always tell them, I, I don't know if we have it in us. That was such a specific, rare, wonderful time. I think now we'd get noted to death. So I would say that's my career highlight. And a very, very, very close second was Daredevil. Um, and the only reason it's a, a second and not number one is I came into that show to help out my buddy Drew Goddard after he had to leave. Um, but again, that was another thing where, uh, and that one was much more difficult because obviously it's a Marvel property. Everybody has an opinion and a concern and wants to protect the character. Um, but that was, uh, that was a close second for career highlights. Thank you, Steve. I think we might have to ask this question again because of future guests, because I love the fact that even when you're talking about success, Mm-hmm. There's a, there's a, you know, there's some rejection and failure in there, and the fact that the oh. fact you only took this meeting because you missed out on a massive opportunity potentially yeah. before. Um, Absolutely. I think it's nice for our listeners to actually hear a story where the executive said, "Yeah, yeah, do what you like," because we've had so many people tell us about the fact that regime change has killed their shows or bad yeah. notes have obviously killed shows and, and so on. So it, it's um it's it's great to hear the a little bit of failure within the success. But Noah, I know you want to ask a traditional rejection failure and adversity story. <laughs> my, my my first off my key takeaway from that as you were talking was the idea that it is a bit ridiculous they ask who the audience is for things. The audience is people that like TV. I want to make a good yeah. show. I, it could appeal to someone in the Midwest. It could appeal to a grandma, a kid. I want to make something interesting is the answer. Not I want it for seven-year-olds to 11-year-olds who live in Nevada. I mean, exactly. the simplicity of that is such a strange yeah. question. It, and one of the biggest surprises of Spartacus, we knew we, we would get the, you know, the 17 to 35 male viewer. I mean, that was a given with the subject matter and the way we were shooting it in the action. What I think was a surprise to everyone is one of our strongest segments was middle-aged women. They loved the show. They really, really drove our numbers. And, you know, in hindsight, it's like, well, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of beautiful, naked men and women. uh, And there's, you know, I always approached Spartacus not as an action show, but as a love story. Uh, every single element of that story was about love, whether it was Bodyatus with his love with Lucretia, Spartacus for his wife. Um, it, you know, it was all built around love. So in a way, it was like one big, very NC-17 rated violent, uh, sexy romance novel. And and I think that appealed to uh, a much broader audience than anyone was expecting, especially because it was so violent. So this this story of yours feels a bit like if 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 getting on a staff is a lightning in a bottle situation, then running in running your own show is like you know a lightning in an even smaller bottle. And now you yeah. have a situation where you not only ran your own show, but you you didn't get noted. You got to run the show. That you you got to write for better and for worse, and it sounds like for better because people love that show. I love that show. It's a great show. People really enjoyed it. You got to write the show you wanted to write. So it takes you now more to the present, right? You 
you had that experience, which is so rare. And we've now interviewed a bunch of people who did, definitely did not have that experience running their yeah. shows, which are also great. But you know, there's all kinds of pressure. We're we're a business. We're not we're not yeah. just art for art's sake. So we have all of these competing interests telling you different things that sometimes often make the end product worse. So now, now you're up for jobs, you're 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 working on shows, you're doing new things. Is it is it harder now to, when you hear those notes come at you, knowing that the thing you were able to do on your own worked at such a high level and that this these future projects might not? Or are you you just get that that was a lightning in a bottle, in a bottle, in a bottle situation? You know, nobody likes to get notes. Uh, I, I don't know one writer, myself included, that, you know, I've been in this for over 20 years now. And every time I hand something in, um, you know, there's a little voice in the back of my mind that's uh, that says this time they're just going to love it. They're not going to have any notes. Never happens. Has never happened once to me in 20 years. Um, it doesn't matter who you are. They will have notes. Uh, and part of it is uh, is a desire. And this is not coming down on executives. Part of it is it, a desire to make it as good as possible. Sometimes that goes too far and they try to make it audience proof. And that's the most deadly kind of note um, where it, it's a systemic, let's dumb everything down. Let's over explain everything. Let's have characters actually say exactly what they're feeling and thinking. So the audience isn't confused. That's when you get really, really bad shows because you, you can't audience proof a show. Um, as much as they try with algorithms now and crunching the numbers, you don't know what's going to hit. If they had a formula, if they had an algorithm that could, you know, predict a hit, all they would have are hits. And that's obviously not happening. So, so much of it is just a gut level feeling, um, which takes me to another thing is that, you know, a lot of times not just studios, but writers and creators are playing catch up where you see what's working now, like, like Ted Lasso, fantastic, huge hit, could not love it more. And now suddenly everybody's looking for the next Ted Lasso uh, instead of looking for the next thing that's original. Uh, you know, it's very easy to fall back into, okay, what's selling now instead of how about we just do a great story and then that'll be the next new thing that everybody wants to do. Um, but I, I'm sure you guys, at, at, you know, Hollywood runs on two things, money and fear. And, uh, you know, it's a constant battle between both of them. And even in my successes, it's been really difficult. Like Daredevil, which I'm super proud of. Um, I literally, uh, you know, my wife had pointed out she was really worried about me on that show because as she explains it, I was always red and yelling all the time <laughs> and I don't really yell. But, you know, on that show, I discovered early on that the only way I could get people to actually listen to me was to lose my mind. Otherwise, I just couldn't break through the static. Um, so even on your successes, there are things that, you know, uh, are very, very difficult. I, I don't think I've ever been on a show that was easy. They're all hard. And, you know, the schedule, the timing, the money, the pressure, uh, everything makes it difficult. Some are worse than others, 
but it's it's never, at least for me, has been an easy time. So we wouldn't be the podcast that we are if I, once you mentioned the daredevil thing, we didn't then go back and let's get some more detail on that. So let's, <laughs> so you're working on, you know, obviously Marvel is extraordinary and yes. the things they've done are extraordinary in TV and in film, obviously. So you're working on the show. So, you know, it's a, obviously a great thing to be working on, but there's frustrations that are making you yell. Can you just talk about sort of what it is? Obviously not, it's not about names. This is just about how yes. you feel. Like how do you deal with, the stress and pressure of working on a huge property like that, knowing that, you know, you want to make this as good as all the other ones. How do you deal with that internally? Daredevil was a really unique case. Um, And to back it up. uh, So I had finished Spartacus for stars. I was on an overall deal with, uh, with stars. And for those who don't know, an overall deal is when a studio pays you a set amount of money for a set amount of years, usually two to three years. And that means you're exclusive to them. You can't work for anybody else. Um, So I I was uh, still on an overall deal at Stars. Uh, I had developed a big um, space show called Incursion, a, a military space show. Um, very, uh, it's kind of band of brothers meets aliens R rated, very gritty boots on the ground, sci-fi show. And I had sold it. We had put together a room. Uh, this is like a pre-failure story. <laughs> we, I, they bought it. We, I, we put together a room, uh, eight episode order for season one. We were, uh, we had finished writing episode four. We were gearing up to start casting and finishing off the order when I got a call from Stars saying they crunched the numbers. The show's too expensive. They're not moving forward. But they still wanted all eight scripts because they were planning on doing it at a later date when they had more money. So uh, that was a weird situation where, you know, we're halfway through writing the show. Oh, we're canceled, but we still got to finish all the episodes writing them. Um, so that was a, a, a bit of an odd situation. So just, just like, how does that work? So we've, we've talked to showrunners whose shows have been canceled and, and mm-hmm. you know, you have to tell 300 people yeah. you're out of work. Now I know this is obviously only the writers at this point. So you, you have to say, Hey guys, you're all out of work, but can you please do your best work for the next yes. you know, six weeks? Um, and there's exactly. no guarantee it'll ever get made, but please do your best work yeah. anyway, while, and please, don't spend all your time looking for a new job because we yeah. need this to be good. <laughs> exactly. And thankfully I, I had a, a really, really wonderful writing staff. Uh, I, I had some people from Spartacus. Uh, I, I had Doug Petrie who uh, I was close friends with when we worked on Buffy together. Um, you know, I, I just had a, a really, really strong, supportive, incredibly fun writer's room. So they were all bummed, but nobody ever phoned it in. Uh, you know, the, the, they're like me. I'm I'm incapable, even if I hate a project and don't want to do it, I can't give less than 110%. Uh, not in my DNA. And thankfully, they were the same way. And everybody was bummed, but we all really enjoyed being around each other. So it... Uh, it, it worked out. I mean, we finished all eight scripts. I, I, there's still some of the 
some of my favorite work um, that I've done in a writer's room. Um, and so uh, after that, I was still on my stars deal. So um, Lionsgate came to me with a uh, property called Romanzo Criminale, which is an Italian crime series that they wanted me to adapt uh, for stars. And so I did that. I did that script. It, it didn't end up going at stars. Still one of my favorite un, unproduced scripts. I really enjoyed working on that. So now I've got about three months left on my deal. And I'm in the enviable position where stars is still paying me just to think. Uh, they just wanted me to think of ideas and come up with stuff. You know, I didn't have to run a show. I didn't have to do anything. Uh, when I got a call from my uh, my my pal Jeff Loeb, um, who was, uh, you know, the head of Marvel Television. Uh, Jeff and I knew each other. <laughs> Most of my stuff all, all goes back to Buffy. Uh, Jeff and I knew each other from Buffy. Uh, Jeff was brought in to spearhead the animated Buffy show that never got off the ground, but we all wrote a bunch of scripts for. So I became friends with him through that. Uh, that's another lesson. Even Joss Whedon, at the height of Buffy, as popular as it was, 20th Century to Fox, uh, we had like, I think, eight scripts for the half-hour Buffy animated show. And they were eight fantastic scripts. Fox looked at them and said, nah, we don't want to do this. So <laughs> even at that level, uh, you know, you're going to have somebody say, no, no, not for us. So Jeff Loeb calls me up and says, hey, would you be interested in coming in and taking over Daredevil? Uh, Drew has written the first two episodes. He's laid out the rough structure of the season, but he has a pre-existing deal to go write and direct the Sinister Six Spider-Man movie for Sony. Um, that, that, that unfortunately never went because then Sony and Marvel, uh, as we all know, uh, came to terms with sharing Spider-Man. Um, so that movie kind of fell by the wayside. Uh, I, of course, was drawing a rather large check for sitting at home thinking. So my first instinct was, eh, I'm really keen on giving that up. But I went in and I heard what they had to say, and I really loved what, what Drew laid out. Um, and Drew and I had worked together on Buffy, of course, and we also wrote, uh, uh, worked together and wrote together on Angel, the spinoff. Um, so I love him to death, super talented guy. So I came in, I decided, okay, I came in and uh, in full disclosure, the money was not great. I took a haircut on that show, much less than I would normally make um, for two reasons. One, to help out a couple of friends who were in a jam. And two, because I grew up reading Marvel and Daredevil, and I love the character, and I love the world. And uh, I had always wanted to, to work on a Marvel property. Um, and they, uh, they really wanted to do a grittier, darker, you know, ground, street-level uh, version of the Marvel Universe. And uh, what they told me is they said, you know, look, we can't go all the way R-rated but we want to push it as close as possible. Uh, you know, we call it PG-16. Um, so started working on the show and 
you know, everybody really loved what we were doing. Every, everybody on that show was working on it really because they had a passion about Marvel and Marvel characters. Um, so there was a lot of passion, a lot of love. And, uh, but it, very soon you could tell some of the executives at Marvel were getting nervous about how dark it was. Um, because obviously, uh, you bring in a guy that did Spartacus, I'm going to push it as far as you let me. <laughs> uh, so, so I was pushing pretty hard and they were a little nervous that it was too dark, too grim. So I remember one of the, I think one of the biggest arguments we had is I got a note that they wanted to add a funny Russian as comic relief. Um, and I, I lost my mind. I pushed back really hard and said, look, that's not this show. If you do that show, you're going to collapse the grounded realism we're working for, and you're going to make the Russians silly and not scary. These guys need to be really fucking scary for this to work. So there was a lot of back and forth, and thankfully they, you know, um, I think they heard that. And uh, Jeff Loeb, who's, you know, one of my oldest friends in Hollywood, uh, <laughs> we would really argue very, very, uh, very loudly. Um, and early on, we came to a mutual agreement um, because, you know, uh, for example, there's a flashback episode where you find out why Wilson Fisk is all fucked up. And uh, there's a scene where young Wilson Fisk kills his dad with a hammer and his mom uh, saws up the body so they can put it in the trash and dispose of it. And there's a part where she puts the saw on the dead husband's arm and she starts moving. There's no visual effect. There's no cutting. But then we move off of her and we hear the sound. Um, and I had a big argument because they didn't want the shot where you saw her start to saw. And I said, what the fuck? you got to have that shot. You know, you're not seeing anything. It's all implied. But that became a huge argument. So what we ended up doing is we just trimmed a bunch off of that shot. We kept it, but it was it was shorter than I wanted and longer than Jeff Loeb wanted. And Jeff and I came to that mutual agreement that as long as we were both not happy, we know we met in the middle. So and that's exactly what we did for the rest of the show. But it was an extremely difficult show um, late in the season. I spent, I think it was a three hour video conference because some execs um, were worried that Matt wasn't being heroic enough, which my, my whole thrust in the series when I came in is I wanted Matt to be a very gray character, that he wasn't completely a hero yet, that he was really messed up. He had very violent tendencies. He often couldn't control himself. And he was like an addict that he had to go out and beat up people. Um, so the suggestion was that Wilson Fisk has planted bombs in an apartment building and Matt has to go in and disarm them before everybody dies. And, and I, <laughs> I said, well, that's not the show. That's not, it's not Spider-Man in the seventies. This is, you know, that's a very cut and dry 
uh, kind of scenario and not the gray area that we're living in. And, and again, it, there was a lot of arguing, a lot of back and forth. Ultimately, uh, you know, we abandoned that idea. And I think I made some other concessions. Um, but uh, yeah, and I think it's important for especially up and coming writers to realize, you know, like when I'm telling these, this story, when other people are telling this story, the one big thing that I had to learn, the executives are not your enemy. They're not my enemy. Um, they have different opinions. They have different agendas. Ultimately, when you boil it down, we all want the same thing. We want the show to be a massive hit. There's just differing opinions about how to get there. And I'm the first one to admit that in these arguments, I've been wrong as much as I've been right. There's things that I've thrown down on and insisted on. Spartacus is a great example. There was an episode. Uh, it's the episode where a spoiler alert. People haven't seen the show. I'm about to spoil something. There's an episode in the first season where Spartacus is waiting for his wife to be delivered. And she arrives and she's been stabbed and she dies in his arms. Um, originally, uh, I wanted to have an episode that really centered on that character of Spartacus's wife and to show their life before she got to this point. And uh, Rob Tapper didn't think it was a great idea, but I insisted. I fucking put my line in the sand. I said, no, this is what we're doing. And we actually wrote that entire script that way. And it came in and the writer did a fantastic job. I read it and my first reaction was, holy shit, this doesn't work at all. Uh, Rob was absolutely right. Uh, we've got to throw this out and start over, which is exactly what we did. So yet you have to be willing to say, oh shit, I made a bad choice. They were right. I was wrong. How can we fix this? Because it happens all the time. I, I, I've done that multiple times and I've tried to to learn when I'm getting notes. Okay. Take a deep breath this is also why I prefer. I always tell executives, send me your written notes. That way I can read them. I can digest them. I can think about them. What I don't say is that I can, you know, scream in my own house and yell and <laughs> get that out of my system and then say, okay, let's take a look at this note and let's take a look at the note behind the note and see how we dress it. But it's really, really important for people to understand the studio is absolutely not your enemy. Um, you need to look for solutions together. Now, look, there can be people at the studio that rub you wrong the wrong way and are not great people. That's definitely happened. Just like there are creators and showrunners and directors that are lousy human beings. You will come across those. And then it's just more like trying to manage the situation. Um, but yeah, very important that the studio is not your enemy. You did something really interesting that I noticed that's, that's rare and, and probably really difficult to do early in your career, very early in your career, at least as far as IMDb is concerned, which is sometimes wrong. You were able to go from writer to writer and director on episodic TV, which I, which is fairly rare for, I don't, for someone on staff or a staff adjacent or wherever you were at that moment, you were able mm -hmm. to do both because, you know, it takes you out of the room the showrunner doesn't necessarily like their writers disappearing for huge yeah. stretches of time to be a director when they have other directors who could come in and do that. Did you do that too? Because you knew 
you'd rather be going up these two paths is because you had director ambitions. Did you get lucky? Was it a combination of a lot of things or your relationship with Joss? Like, it seems like a lot of things enabled you to do this because you're not only a writer. I mean, we've been talking about the writing and showrunning side of your career, but you're also, you know, a a very established director. Yeah, that was, uh, it was a combination of all the above. And it was also, uh, honestly, a very different time in television. When I first started, um, a show called MTV Undressed was actually my first show. Uh, if you guys remember Undressed, it was like a teen sex comedy on MTV. Uh, that that was my first paying Hollywood job. And then I had written a spec, a spec Buffy the Vampire Slayer that got into Joss's hands. And I got hired to do a freelance episode of that show. And then based on that, I got hired full time. Um, I always say that's, you know, Joss plucked me out of obscurity and and really gave me a career. How I started directing, which also leads me to one of my biggest failures in my career. Um, I was working on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Uh, We were working on season uh, six. And Joss had sold Firefly to Fox. And so he, he came into my office and he said, look, I've sold Firefly. Um, I need Tim Minear to come run it. Tim Minear was a right-hand man down on Angel. I say down because uh, uh, the offices were at Bergamot Station in Santa Monica, which was an old uh, train depot that they had converted into like an artist uh, community. And there were uh, Fox had some stages uh, as part of that. Um, and Buffy was upstairs, Angel was downstairs. Uh, so Josh said, I need to take Tim Minear from downstairs, move him over to run Firefly. That puts a huge hole in Angel. Would you be willing to switch over to Angel next season for a promotion? And I hear you want to direct, uh, we'll let you direct an episode. And I said, well, fuck yes, of course, <laughs> of course I would. And I loved Buffy, but I also loved Angel. In a lot of ways, I think Angel was a little more my style. Um, so I agreed to do that. So that next season, I went down to work on Angel. And I, I was scheduled to, I think it was episode 17, I was slated in to do. And I was convinced that at some point, somebody would say, well, shit, you've never directed anything like not even a play. Um, maybe this isn't such a good idea. But the date kept getting closer and closer and nobody popped up saying you're not doing it. And then I realized, oh shit, I'm actually doing it. Um, the one thing they did is they set up one full day of second unit shooting for me to come in, I guess, to make sure I wasn't a complete idiot. Uh, and so I came in and I shot a couple of scenes that had been dropped from uh, previous episodes that had shot and they ran out of time. Um, so I did those, uh, you know, nothing caught on fire and everything came out fine. So I, I did my my episode of Angel. And again, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. Um, everything I knew about directing, I had read from books and just watching movies and stuff. Uh, uh, particularly that first episode I did, I think on the commentary, I, I, I mentioned that I, I relied heavily on Sergio Leone movies and his framing and stuff. And uh, 
and uh, the old Kung Fu movie master, the flying guillotine. Um, I used a lot of those kind of visual references. Uh, and I remember I, I had shot like the first couple of days of my directorial debut. I got a call from Jeff Bell, who was running Angel at the time. And he said, uh, he and Joss had watched the dailies. They look great. Keep doing what I was doing. So that's what I did. The episode turned out really well. Um, it was difficult. You know, I think I was over schedule because I was still learning, uh, but we completed it. And then the next season I did two more episodes and here's where the big failure comes. My second episode, my sophomore at bat was a complete disaster. I mean, I almost stopped directing. It was so bad. It was a very complicated show where uh, Wolferman Hart is being haunted and Spike, who's still uh, kind of a ghost, is investigating it. It's basically a ghost whose serial kills other ghosts. Um, but because of the nature of it, you know, you, you would have to shoot a scene twice with a ghost that's there and Spike can see, but the rest of the people can't see it. So you have to shoot everything twice, which immediately made it very difficult. And the first day we were shooting, we were in this set that was supposed to be a basement set. So it was extremely low light, which is difficult. It was a set we had never shot in before. There were practical effects, special effects, lots of stunts. And literally at lunch, we make it to lunch. We look at the schedule. Uh, I am now somehow a day behind shooting, and I've only made it to lunch on the first day. So the line producer comes down on set, and this is one of the worst moments of my career, screams at me for like two minutes in front of the cast, the crew, everybody, and ends his tirade by saying, am I going to have to call 20th Century Fox and tell him you can't do this? And at the moment, in the back of my mind was, fuck you. Let's see if you can do any better. Um, but, you know, at that point, you just got to shut up and take it. And I remember I went home that night and burst into tears for like 20 minutes because of all the anger and emotion welling up in me. And I thought, that's it. I can't do this. I'm not a director. And uh, for me, directing does not come naturally. It's like, I've got to, it's hard work for me. There are directors that, you know, just have that spark. I mean, Steven Spielberg being the greatest example ever, who can walk onto a set and figure out how to move everybody so elegantly and, you know, get such amazing stuff in just a few shots. Um, I have a hard time thinking like that, although I'm trying to train myself to. So that was just terrible. So I limped along through the rest of the episode. Um, it's interesting. Joss came to set that next day after I had been screamed at and said, hey, I heard you had a tough time yesterday. I'm just here to check in. So I was doing this scene with like six of the characters in an office. He sat. He watched for about 20 minutes. He came on the set and he said, ah, you're doing great. Listen, I'd suggest maybe you do this instead of that, but you're doing fine. So it was it was the pep talk that I needed. Uh, so I finished that episode and then later in the season, I did another episode that went okay. 
Um, after Angel, I'm going to jump to my next debacle. After uh, it, one of the problems that I kept getting yelled at on Angel was, you know, I was taking too long. I was doing too many setups uh, and setups, uh, as most people know, but if you don't, is like if you have an over the shoulder of talking to one character, uh, you know, you're on them, that's one setup. You got to reverse, do the opposite shoulder on the other character, that's another setup. Every time you move the camera, not move within the scene, but like go from a wide to a close up or stuff like that, it's a different setup. Um, I was notorious for doing way too many setups because uh, in my mind, I wanted all these pieces that I could put together. So when I, uh, Angel finished uh, shooting, we, we got canceled in season five and we wrapped up that show. I ended up working, uh, Jeff Loeb pops up again. Jeff Loeb was on Smallville and said, hey, come on over to Smallville. We could have some fun with Superman. Uh, so I did. And that first season, uh, part of my deal, I was scheduled to, you know, write and direct an episode. Um, so I have this idea for kryptonite zombies. You know, it's a classic night of the living dead with kryptonite, you know, grainy night, Luther core truck, uh, transporting uh, kryptonite sludge from his experiments, uh, crashes and overturns next to a cemetery. The stuff seeps in, and you got kryptonite zombies, and they surround the Kent farm. And of course, Clark is powerless against kryptonite zombies. So, and I was really excited about this story. <laughs> so I, I leave the room to go do a rewrite on another episode. I come back, and uh, I think it was Al Goff, and I, I love Al Goff and Miles Miller, uh, who created and ran Smallville, were fantastic to me. I could not love them more. <laughs> But I remember I bump into Al and he says, hey, uh, we got a better idea for your episode. Clark and Lana find a baby. <laughs> I thought, oh, I'm fucked. I'm absolutely fucked. So my kryptonite zombie show became an episode called Ageless, um, where Clark and Lana find a baby. And this baby was born under, uh, you know, kryptonite influence. So he... Uh, there are these energy surges and he goes from a baby to being an eight year old and an eight year old to being a teenager in these surges. And he's, he's going to surge and die. And when he does, it's probably going to take out half of Smallville. So that's what the story became. Um, where I really got into trouble is when I went up to shoot it, I made the conscious decision because I was always getting yelled at on angel because I was going too long. I had too many setups. My goal was to finish early every single day. And by God, I finished early every single day, sometimes a couple of hours early. And as you can guess, when I got back into editing, I hated everything. I didn't have enough coverage. I didn't have enough pieces. It just, I overcompensated to uh, try to fix that issue in my editing. And it's, I think is one of the worst episodes of Smallville in there. 10 season uh, uh, run. Um, and I remember after that, uh, talking to another uh, TV director, uh, an old pro who said, look, here's the thing, where they yell and stomp their feet and get really upset if you're over and over budget, yes. If it's a success, will they remember or care? No, they're not gonna care. Um, and if he says, conversely, if you go in and you finish on time, 
under budget. Everybody's happy and it stinks. They're still going to hate it and they're still going to blame you. So give it your best shot. Try not to be, you know, crazy extravagant, but just realize, and, and, and I really took that to heart moving forward is, uh, you know, obviously you got to, you got to watch the clock. You got to try to get everything. But at a certain point, if I'm on set and I determine I need another half hour or I need to go an hour over, yell all you want. Um, I would rather do that now than spend five times as much coming back trying to do it later. So that was uh, that was one of those hard, hard learned lessons. And it was the I call it the exploding baby episode. The exploding baby episode was so traumatic. The next season I was supposed to direct another episode. I said, no, I'm going to pass. And again, I seriously considered not directing again. And then in my final season of Smallville, uh, through the luck of the draw, I got the proto Justice League episode that I was supposed to write and direct. And again, it was really, really hard. Um, You know, I I got into some uh, very uncomfortable arguments with uh, um, the line producer on that one, too, who was also a director. Um, and I, I, I really, uh, you know, I, I love the guy. He was great and a great director, but, um, you know, sometimes you feel like, okay, you, if I'm the director on set, you can't go talk to the actors and give them direction. I'm not going to stand for that kind of shit. That's just confusing and disrespectful. And, and, and it wasn't, again, this guy was not being a dick. He's a lovely guy. He was just trying to help. But, you know, it rubbed me the wrong way and it probably rubbed me more the wrong way because I was still very insecure about directing. Uh, But that one actually turned out well. I always say if you if you look at Smallville and you look at a list of like the best episodes and the absolute worst episodes, I'm about evenly split on both lists. I'm like in the top episodes and I'm in the shittiest episodes. And I completely agree with that assessment. I think I did some great episodes and I think I did some episodes that absolutely suck. I, I love the fact that we started with a success question and then <laughs> didn't really ask that many rejection and failure questions, but you sort of, you've dragged yourself through telling us some fantastically wild stories of rejection. And I think, you know, yes. part of the reason we enjoy this podcast is the, the honesty that a man who has achieved as much as you have He's very happy just telling us about all the times you made a mess of directing and nearly quit. Oh, oh, terrible. So we could we could do this all day, but unfortunately, that's not how podcasts work. So we're going to have to move to our to our last question. Now, it's interesting because you've actually been given some you've been giving some good advice about directing while telling us how you didn't do well in it. So our last question we ask every guest is if you could give a single piece of advice to somebody wanting to join the industry, what would it be? I think you've sort of already done that for directing. So let's do this for, for writing or, or show running. You choose. But what sure. advice would you give somebody? Well, I, I think with writing, um, you know, for years and years and years, especially when I was trying to break in, um, and it took me a long time to break in. I, I graduated uh, from UCLA with a, a master's in uh, playwriting. That's what I'd studied as a playwright. And it took me nearly seven years before I got a job 
in Hollywood. I was working at a at a small private Japanese school in Van Nuys teaching English to Japanese students for nearly seven years. Um, uh, and so, I mean, the first bit of advice is you can't give up. Don't don't put any kind of time limit on yourself. You know, you have to be realistic. You have to have a day job to cover things, but it, it, it doesn't matter. It, you know, some people um, get jobs before they're out of college. Um, I know when I was in Santa Cruz, Brandon Braga was already working with the Star Trek people before he even got out of college. Um, other people like myself take a little bit longer to get a foot in the door. So you can't give up. Um, the other thing, I you hear this all the time, the advice, write what you know, which is the worst fucking advice you can ever give somebody. Um, don't worry about writing what you know. Write what you're passionate about. That's the most important thing. Write what you're passionate about. Um, you can do research to fill in the blanks. Uh, if, if I just wrote what I know, yeah, I would have wrote a bunch of boring stuff. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's what I know. Um, so yeah, you just you've got to write what you're passionate about. Um, you can't be that concerned with again, what's selling, what's popular now. Um, I remember when I was in school, I, I went through this screenwriting program as well. And um, we had to write a, a feature spec um, in about mm, 12 weeks. And we were all pitching our ideas. And this one guy comes in and says, I've been reading the trades and I've determined this is what's selling and this is the, you know, the genre, the story that I'm going to tell because this is what's selling. And thankfully, my professor looked at him and said, uh, well, that's meaningless. It's absolutely meaningless because what you're reading that's selling now is not going to be selling in six months. Uh, you know, that you're being behind the curve. You got to get ahead of the curve. And at the end of the day, all anybody cares about is a great script. The other thing people really like is an entrance into a world that hasn't been explored that much. You take Breaking Bad, it's a fantastic uh, example where it's, it's, you know, it's the world of meth chemists and that, that specific drug culture. Mad Men's another great one, the world of advertising, you know, in the 50s. Um, if you can find one of those unique angles, great. But the most important thing is you have to be passionate about it. When you're writing that script, you got to ask yourself, do I want to spend 24-7 for the next five to eight years just doing this story? And if the answer is no, you should probably do a different story that you're passionate about. And honestly, even if you love this story with all your heart and soul, Let's say you have five seasons. <laughs> By the end of season two, you're going to hate everything about it, and you're not going to want to do it anymore. Uh, you know, you always hit that wall. I felt that way with Spartacus. It's like Jesus. I, I love this show, but I can't imagine this going longer than four seasons. Um, so it's really important to start at a place of passion and love. And a story that uh, you don't just want to tell. It's a story you have to tell. And, uh, you know, for me, for me, it was, it's weird. With Spartacus and Daredevil, um, two successful shows that I've run, um, 
I didn't actually sell either one of those. I came in after they had been sold. So all of my advice about do something that you're passionate about, that was completely different with me for those because I was hired to come in and do it instead of selling it as a spec. But if you're writing on a spec, definitely do something that you're really, really excited about. Absolutely. Brilliant. That's fantastic advice. And I think that everyone says, write what you know. And I think this is the first time I've heard a twist on that, which makes such great sense. Look, this has been um, an extraordinary insight into how all this works. So Stephen S. Knight, the director of some of the worst episodes of Smallville. Thank you very much for being part of our podcast. I appreciate it. Thanks so much, guys. Thank you. All right, that does it for us today. I want to thank you for tuning in to Screaming Into the Hollywood Abyss. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach out to me on Twitter. I am at Evslin. Wait, are we are we not bothering to talk about the other Twitter account, given we have this great social engagement and people never bother to actually include me, whose idea it was to do this podcast in the first place? You have a Twitter account? I do have a Twitter account. It's at Dan Rutsty. And not only, Noah, do I have another a, a Twitter account, I also have two other podcasts. And I've, some of our listeners have been saying, Dan, please tell us about your other podcasts. So our other podcasts are... Uh, what are my other podcasts? Oh, yes. United States of Dramerica, where I share a glass of whiskey and have a fascinating conversation. And America, the beautiful game, where I talk about soccer in America and what it can learn from Europe. For our repeat listeners, uh, you can probably stop listening when Dan starts talking about his second and third podcast. Uh, that brings us to the end of another great episode. We, as always, want to thank our wives for putting up with our nonsense. That's good. I'll do.